0: hello everyone uh, while you're enjoying your meal I just like to uh, recognize our former treasurer I never got a chance to really thank him publicly I see he's not here right now uh, where the heck is he <laughs> oh, okay Okay, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you right now, Gene, Gene Olekson was the treasurer for SACPA for six years, I think, five or six years, and uh, he put us in uh, really good shape, so we should be very thankful to him that we, uh, we have a little bit of money in the bank, among other, many others, of course, uh, so I just wanted to recognize him personally. Uh, personally, you can clap for him when he comes back.
1: Did you know why we were clapping there, sir? Not because you were coming back from the washroom, but because of your duty as a long-standing treasurer for SACPA. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, welcome back. Um, You have on your tables the um, announcement for next week's Fabulous topic, Lethbridge's Trashy Secret, Making the Case for Waste Reduction, with Speaker Kathleen Shepard, and the moderator is Cheryl Bradley. So, if you're interested in waste reduction and how we can attain it, and some of the questions you might have about it, please come by next week, same time, same place, and find out more about it. Um... The other upcoming sessions are listed on the SACPA website at www.sacpa.ca. And um, you can also listen to past presentations, uh, podcasting, uh, which you can find on that website. Once again, I remind you that there's a suggestion box placed just outside the door for any new ideas uh, about presentations, which the program committee gratefully receives we're also we're always happy to receive ideas or ideas you have for speakers Um, we're preparing a long list of invitation letters for speakers for our 50th anniversary so please if you have ideas please share them with us now all right now is time for the Q&A so uh, the microphone is there if you have questions please come to the microphone and Pepper our speaker with your queries. Yes, please come to, me. Forget to identify. Don't forget to identify who you are with each question.
2: Thanks, Heather. My name is Larry Alford. Thank you for a wonderful, enlightening presentation. Uh, my question is, and I think you touched on it in your very last moment or two of presentation, is it necessarily sexist or is it status of the individuals in the courtroom? Um, for example, if a poor immigrant male were to assault a high-status female, does this treatment get the same? Does the culture of impunity and believability and those things change depending on the status of individuals in the courtroom, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
3: Absolutely. Um, Yes, I would say definitely that is the case. And it it really, that can be seen in a lot of the, the cases that have been going on across university campuses in the United States, right, especially with students who are, you know, valued members of sports teams and they the culture of impunity absolutely applies to them. But then you see in the recent case where the woman who was sexually assaulted here in in Lethbridge and her assailant Uh, led to the villainization of indigenous communities because of of who her assailant was. And I think that absolutely, status plays an enormous and very important role in how people are treated and who, like as I said before, with the sort of unequal distribution of penalties and privileges, who's going to be punished, who is not going to be punished. And as you know, incarceration rates in Canada Um, are deeply racialized and reflect these prejudices and these inequalities between people.
1: Uh, My name is Kyle Lediatt with Lethbridge Campus Media, and uh, I'm just asking, where do you think the uh, culture of uh, sexual abuse started, and uh, how do you think that we can change
4: it?
3: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I said... (laughs) <laughs> and do, do you have a few days? <laughs> you could take some of my courses. Um, um, yeah, uh, so I, I alluded to that a little bit at the end of my talk and that we live in a settler colonial society and that sexual violence has also been linked by many, many indigenous scholars to the appropriation of lands. So this is a deep-seated Historical set of phenomena that currently still exist and are ongoing in the present when you can see that with a thousand missing, over a thousand missing and murdered indigenous women in this country, right? So we have a whole sort of structure of impunity and, and system of sexual violence going on in settler societies that needs to be addressed as such. And again, the status of people who gets to get justice in a court courtroom is entirely contingent, again, on how those penalties and privileges are distributed unevenly within a society. And as far as ending it, well... I don't know. That's a really tough question. I mean, short of transforming the entire social context and economic context in which we live, I don't know what kind of answer to give you, but I can say that one thing I think is very important is sexual education at primary school levels. Teaching children the proper names of body parts, teaching high school students instead of nationalist fictions, teaching them the history of how Canada was actually formed and how these penalties and privileges are unevenly distributed, right? We've got a lot of work to do, I think, in this country in terms of educational curriculum, in terms of sex education, in terms of trying to ferret out these sorts of prejudicial stereotypes and rape mythologies and to really help people to understand where they are living and what kind of social context they're living in.
5: Douglas Mitchell, thank you, Carolyn, for a very airy lecture. I'd like to have a copy of that so (laughs) we can really digest it. Uh, I'm just reflecting back to my youth, and uh, there are two topics I'd like you to comment on. Root causes, and you started to address that. Um, My experience would be that uh, family upbringing and more particularly alcohol later are two major factors and i'd like you to comment on what you think of those as factors
3: okay so so family history and um and substance abuse Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to go to we have to ask ourselves what's going on in the broader social and cultural context that kind of drives people to engage in certain kinds of coping strategies right and so one of the things that was brought up um, in response to to the other sexual assault that I was referring to. Um, where the man who had been arrested was identified as a member of an indigenous community. And part of the response of the community was to say, well, you have to look at the history of residential schools, you have to look at the history of colonization, you have to look at ongoing colonial practices in the present, Mm. and then you can begin to build a picture of exactly what puts people in certain kinds of circumstances in their lives where certain kinds of conduct um, become either normalized or more acceptable. And I think you also have to be able to understand um, how people differentially deal with, as I said before, the unequal distribution of these benefits and burdens, right? So, what would drive somebody to engage in, you know, s- harmful coping strategies themselves, right? So, family history, all of these things, there's a lot of psychological literature on this stuff, but I don't think it determines necessarily a person's future. I do have hope that people are not sort of. Um, making the assumption that just because somebody is born into one kind of environment that is stigmatized or villainized within the larger society, that they themselves are going to go out and start, you know, perpetrating sexual violence. So I think it also comes down to our conceptions of what is considered to be normal, what is considered to be an acceptable family. I think we need to take those apart as well to deconstruct well, why is some per- one person, one family formation, considered to be deviant or abnormal, whereas another family formation is not, right? So it also comes down to how people read other people's situations and how people read each other's bodies is a kind of a text telling them a story without actually interacting with the people involved. So there's a lot of factors at work here. And so what my work focuses on is this, these kind of prejudices and stereotypes that people carry with them. So I hope that kind of answers your question.
4: One, Some of us always have to turn the mic down. Thank you so much for your presentation because there's a lot to digest. My name is Frances Schultz and one of my concerns is that in many professions, to keep up your ability to practice in that that profession, you need to be taking courses to keep yourself up to date on what's going on in the world. So my question is, first of all, do judges have to do anything to ensure that they are up to date on the law, and we already know of a case with Danny Thomas where he wasn't up to date. And the other thing is do you think that camp is going to get kicked out? <laughs>
3: Okay, well, those are also hard questions to answer. Um, yeah. So, well, with regard to judicial education, there's a national institute for judges that offers all sorts of courses for them, and you can get these bench books, and these are really interesting things where they're kind of like the, um, you know, sexual assault for dummies books for judges who they can get this bench book and they can read over, okay, it has the list of, you know, most recent jurisprudence, most recent changes in the legislation and all the rest of it, and so they do have the option of availing of those resources resources, Um, but I believe that it's about their decision to do that, right? And so in this particular case, one of the things that Justice Camp was saying is that he was not familiar with the laws around sexual assault. So that's what I mean by due diligence. It was his job to do his due diligence and to get that bench book and to maybe take some courses and to be able to know those transformations.
4: My question is, is it a requirement for them, as it is for other professions?
3: Well, there are requirements that they, they do this. It is a requirement in your job to do this. But whether people actually do do it, well, that's a whole other story. <laughs> so so people do have to, you know, keep up to, to date. Um, and so the second part of your question, I'm sorry, could you... Well, I don't know, because I'm not on that review board, but (laughs) um, I mean, the history of this is very difficult to get um, kicked off the bench as a judge. Uh, Judges police themselves, right? And so... I mean, and this has come up in a number of different institutional contexts in Canada, right? So the police policing themselves, and should there be civilian oversight and all of this other kind of stuff has, has come up over and over and over again in different places um, over the course of time in, in Canadian provinces. And so perhaps what this is doing, along with the other judges who've who been also singled out and kind of you know, been looked at and critiqued for their comments from the bench, that may be what this is going to alert people to, um, Two, is the need for some kind of um, other form of oversight in terms of you know ha- proper or improper use of
6: judicial discretion? Hi, my name is Yvonne Jones, and my question is about cost. We're always reluctant to spend money on education and prevention, but what about the cost of litigation?
3: <laughs> litigation is very, very expensive. It's very expensive. So, I mean, who can afford? And also, lawyers are expensive, right? So who can afford an attorney? And who can avail of legal aid, right? There are only certain kinds of, you know, cases that get legal aid. And then there's societies like the, um, what's it called, the Lethbridge? There's a a group in Lethbridge that provide um, sort of a um, lower cost or no cost legal services to people, um, who are not covered by legal aid. So, um, yes, this speaks to, again, inequalities, unequal access to justice. I mean, really, if you want a good attorney, you have to have the money to have a good attorney. And if you can't, then you will get whoever is appointed to you, and you will not know you know what their their skill level is or or what have you and so it's it's a very difficult question i mean access to justice is a problem a very big problem in this country and in other countries as well so so yeah i mean i hope that that answers your question
7: Thanks, Carolyn, for your talk and also for your answers to these questions. Often, uh, the question period is gives a lot of good information, so I appreciate that. Uh, I'm Mary Shillington. I'm a retired clinical social worker, and as such, before w- if we were going to continue to practice and maintain our license, we had to do and prove that we had done yearly upgrading, mm-hmm. uh, university courses. And so I don't underst- And we, our association is is uh, policed by our association, and it's police, so I don't, that's no excuse for the judges not doing something better. Uh, My concern is for the issues we're hearing out of Thunder Bay, and the Indigenous women who are being mistreated by the police, and what, and their fear about coming forward, uh, they're saying that not, not enough people are, Uh, giving the information. Well, I guess if I was an indigenous woman living in Thunder Bay, I wouldn't give the information either, Mm because heavens, what could they do to me? Can you comment on some of that? Because that's happening not just in Thunder Bay and other places in Canada as well.
3: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And again, it speaks to the need for some kind of transformation to take place throughout the criminal justice system, because these... These attitudes that are pervasive, racist, sexist attitudes, stereotypical presumptions, they, they are embedded within every single institution in this country. And of course they are, because that sort of, you know, what the broader society looks like. You can't pretend that because there's this one institutional context that it's an enclave of safety and security for people. If you do that, you actually run the risk of reproducing a a dangerous fiction where people who are in positions of privilege and they have the ability to not see these kinds of violence can just say, oh, well, that doesn't happen here. Right? And so I think that, I mean, the criminal justice system in general, the police force, all of these different kinds of institutions, I mean, is it down to education? To me, that seems like a trite answer, and I don't want to give you a trite answer, because I don't know that if people who are not willing to learn that education, if they will learn it, right? And this is some of what feminist advocates say about, you know, people are always advocating for restorative justice models, right? And so some feminists say, well, wait a second, let's let's critique this a little bit. How can we have a restorative model when, like, let's look around, what are we trying to restore, right? Like, we have to change so many cultural and social values before you can, you know, have a restorative model where... Both the perpetrator of the violence and the person who's the complainant can get what they need from the larger society in which they live. And I, I'm sure that you could probably speak volumes about that as a social worker, right? As, as a retired social worker, you must have seen a lot of stuff. <laughs> so I, I can't really answer your question, I guess, thoroughly in terms of solutions. I wish I had a magic wand, but unfortunately <laughs> I don't. But thank you for your question.
5: My name is Tad Mitsui I, uh, You just mentioned the restorative process. I just wonder, and if you can ask, uh, add your opinion about this, is the whole model of uh, combative adversarial style of a judiciary process outdated.
2: Mm. Uh,
5: if you look back, it came from trial by combat. Mm. The one whose money, power, muscle, win. Uh, I once uh, participated in a process of murder trial uh, joined the team of defense, and I was astonished how much they lie, so long as it's not mm-hmm. discovered. Yeah. Please uh, comment on this, about the adversarial process of the judici- judiciary process.
3: Absolutely. I I completely agree with you. (laughs) I I spend a lot of time critiquing uh, the justice system in general, and especially litigation, especially expensive forms of litigation. And the adversarial process is absolutely, it's unfair. And in an unequal society, you know, those benefits and burdens, the, the odds are stacked against some people and not against others in that context. And in all, who's got the money to get the education to go through law school, then to go and practice as a lawyer for 10 years, then to go and apply to the judiciary? It's really an, an unfair system fundamentally at its core. Right, so I would agree with you on that one, and there need to be, you know, major transformations in that, but again, what those would look like, given the culture, you know, the broader sort of social environment in which many of us find ourselves, I don't know, do we, have to <laughs> do we have to work on ourselves first in order to transform how people relate to one another on a daily basis? You know, how people relate to one another in their workplaces and their homes and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, the statistics on sexual violence, let's face it, most incidents of sexual violence occur in the home by people and it's perpetrated by people known to the person who's being violated. And similarly, like the second highest number happen in institutional context, not surprisingly at all, right? So what do we do to fundamentally transform our interpersonal relations with one another before some major kind of reform to the criminal justice system will actually work, will actually not disadvantage some at the expense of others?
0: Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thank you very much, Carolyn, to come and speak about this rather touchy subject. Mm. Um, You already alluded a little bit to Trump. (laughs) Uh, Almost anything you can talk about nowadays can be alluded to Trump, but especially (laughs) this topic. I think, uh, do you think uh, him lowering the bar quite a long ways down mostly in the United States, I suppose, but it carries over to other countries as well, Uh, that what he did is seen as acceptable by even women. Mm. Uh, What do you think that's going to do to our moral compass going forward?
3: Uh, that's an excellent question, and I, I've been kind of following all the so, social media commentary on the the election, and and a lot of people are are deeply disturbed by this, and and are reporting higher rates of of hate crimes and other forms of violence, and so it does. I mean, in some ways, it it creates a normative or reinforces a normative structure where this kind of violence becomes okay. And, I mean, the question is, for me, is more like, okay, so there's this this man saying these things, and people still vote for him. But this stuff was all going on before he started to run for politics, right? It was everywhere. I mean, all these kinds of violence, hate crimes, you know, crimes, you know, all of this stuff. It, it just, discrimination, it's everywhere. And so maybe, I mean... I'm hoping it doesn't sort of signal to people all over the world that they can do whatever they want (laughs) to each other, especially to vulnerable uh, populations, to women. I hope it doesn't signal that it's okay to be Islamophobic or anti-Semitic. But uh, I wonder, to what extent is he also kind of a mirror and maybe when people look in that mirror, they will see see something they don't want to see. And maybe that'll motivate people to try and transform things in a different way. So maybe there could be a light at the end of this tunnel. I, I hope. That is my hope, but I guess only time will tell.
8: My name is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> Serge Manco. Uh, I might have kind of something to add to the lady ahead of me a bit uh, about the judge taking courses and stuff. I just wonder if, uh, like, the the way it works is the, the judge, he gets information from the Crown Prosecutor and the the defendant's lawyer. Now, is it possible that they set the mindset for this judge in his ruling Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
8: rather than depending on what courses he took or (laughs) (laughs) anything? I mean, he wouldn't even have to take a course. He just goes by the information he's got in front of him. And Uh, if they set the stage for... uh, You know, for what the judge did wrong on his decision, you know, maybe they should be looked at too
3: hmm Well, absolutely, right? So yeah. it's the entire process, right? And so that was kind of what I was trying to bring out in my talk, is that it's not the judge by himself. It's the entire process. So there's this structural violence going on, there's this cultural violence going on, and it's meant to address the direct violence, but it's actually compounding it, right? So, so in this particular case, absolutely, like what I was saying about education before, people have to be open to learning. They have to want to change their way of thinking, to be receptive to that kind of information. So even if the judge had read all the manuals in the world, and even if he had gone to every single training course that exists, would it necessarily have changed the outcome in this case? I don't know. And if the defense had made the application that he needed to, because there are three stages that you need to undergo. and under 276 of the criminal code and it was the defense's obligation to put in writing why he thought that that evidence should be introduced in trial presented to the judge the judge reads it over, if the judge says okay this has met the criteria of section 276 now we have a voir dire which is the preliminary um, investigation of the witness so this is all you know, behind closed doors and the witness comes in, they're not compelled to testify but the defense has to say well this is why this line questioning is important. None of that happened in this case. The defense walked in, introduced this spurious line of questioning, and the crown, and this is where I don't actually believe, you know, these accounts of, oh, well, he just didn't know the law. Well, he did know the law because the crown stood up and said, you know, in her many objections in this case, and said, hey, guess what? Section 276 of the criminal code. She even said at one point in the transcript, you're supposed to you know, fill out an application for this evidence to be introduced. And the defense didn't do it. And the problem with Justice Camp is he said, well, it's okay because it doesn't count as sex acts. So the se- Section 276 only refers to sex acts, it doesn't refer to talk about sex. And so he did know the law, because the law was told to him by the Crown Attorney. So the idea that education is going to fix this I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it is, which is unfortunate. Maybe These are our last two response. questions.
6: Thank you so much for your for unpacking the cultural context of sexual violence here in Canada. I'm wondering you you your talk leads St- us. Oh, I'm Bev Latherstone, Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, your talk makes a very um, strong argument for transform. For transformation of our culture. It, it seems like a chicken and the egg. It seems like we're in the culture where we're created by the culture, we're trying to break out of the culture. <laughs> How do we do that? Uh, yep. Okay. So I'm wondering if in other colonial cultures, settler cultures like Australia, um, we know we've, they, they have a very similar problem that we have to our murdered and uh, missing indigenous women. They have the same that same kind of horrific um, current Um, situation but can we learn (coughs) how to do transformation of the culture from any other settler cultures or is there anything in the history that would give us an idea other than individually working how we can turn this iceberg upside down Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) that's an excellent question that's an excellent question Um, I think that people have been very active politically and socially for a very long time in, in settler societies who don't think that these things are okay and who question, you know, the legitimacy of sovereignty, you know, of state sovereignty, right, who question all of these things. And so I think that, I mean, uh, I'm probably giving another trite answer, but it's about people building coalitions with one another to be able to work towards greater transformation. It's about people building alliances with indigenous peoples as well and working together to transform this kind of ethos. And, and the root of that is really the repatriation of land and resources. You know, And that's the really difficult one, to say, okay guess what, you know, the settler society, we're all, you know, either living on stolen land or a land where the treaties are not being honored appropriately. How do we change that? Let's start there. Let's work together to start there. You know, let's stop perpetrating this kind of violence against the land, against the resources. And maybe that will be, that should be part of the conversation.
2: Thank you for your presentation. I'm Evertonis, and I agree with most of the things you said, except you talk about a justice system. I don't think we have a justice system. (coughs) We have a legal system, because on a technicality, you can get off. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about court cases and judges enough. I want to bring up the results of sexual activity. A human being is conceived look at homeless people. So a mother has a baby, she's homeless, whether the father is known or not, is immaterial. What do we do as society? Do we take the baby away, give it up to a foster parent, denying the mother the experience of motherhood because after all she looked after it for nine months? If you don't like what we are doing, you can also advise us what we should be doing. Thank you.
3: Okay, so, so the question. Can I just paraphrase your question back to you and correct me if I'm wrong? So you're asking me whether um, children should be taken away from from homeless mothers. Is that? I'm that so not sure.
2: what?
1: W- and the kid. Yeah, your child gets taken. Sir, I'm not sure if that's really completely on the topic of. Judiciary is
2: sexist.
1: If you want to try to answer it, you're welcome to try, but it's not really on the topic.
3: Well, I mean, it's a very difficult question, and and thank you for that question. But I, I also think it speaks to the broader, I mean, how do we, as a society take care of people who are homeless, and why is it okay that people end up homeless in the first place, right? So what you're speaking to is more structural violence that prevents some people from from having adequate food and shelter. And so that needs to be addressed as opposed to like the taking a child away from a mother who's homeless is not the solution to homelessness. Right, so solve homelessness and you won't have social services coming in and and taking children away from homeless women.